The teaching from this morning comes from Paul's Epistles to the Romans, chapter 2, verses 17 through 29. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will condemn you who who have the written code in circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is the word of the Lord. So we are still in uh, Romans this morning, and uh, just to remind you what we're doing, we are... uh, working our way through the first three chapters of Romans, and a few weeks ago we did the first 11 chapters in Genesis, and we're going to flip back and forth. We've got uh, this week, and then two more weeks, and we'll finish Romans 3, and we'll be back in Genesis chapter 12, and I'll start out with the the story of Abraham, and and hopefully uh, you'll see why I broke it up that way when we get there. Um, But today... We're looking at uh, the end of Romans chapter 2, and just to remind you, this letter was written uh, by the Apostle Paul uh, in AD 57, and it's written to a church in the great city of Rome, and and he has not ever visited this church or these Christians. He's never met them, and uh, that'll come out here in a moment when we we look at uh, the passage we're looking at today. But one of the things I keep trying to emphasize is the main theme of the whole book is is God's good news for the whole world. That's what Romans is all about. But in order for us to truly grasp this good news, we we have to accept the bad news first. And that's where we are. We are right in the middle of the bad news of the gospel. Uh, Beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, uh, Paul lays out the bad news. And what we've seen so far in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, we saw Paul's diagnosis of the human condition. And what he told us here was that all people know God. Every single human being who's ever lived knows God. And the reason is because God has made it clear to them and what he has made. And therefore, they're without excuse. But the problem is, we suppress that truth in our unrighteousness, Paul tells us. And we do that by exchanging the truth about him 
for a lie. And in particular, particular, a lie to love and serve and worship something that's created rather than the one who created it. And we've noticed already that there are uh, two responses to Paul's diagnosis. And we're going to look at a third one today. The first one uh, we could simply put like this. The first response to, to this uh, human diagnosis is just follow your own path. Uh, follow your own path, follow your own dreams, the path of self-discovery, and, and encourage other people to do the same. In other words, live your life independently of God without regard for him, and, and um, that's the first response. The second response we looked at last week, which uh, we could essentially boil down to just make sure that you're better than everyone else, that you let everybody else know that you're better than everyone else, and then hide all the ways that you're not. So this is sort of the, the, the moral, self-righteous person. But today we're going to look at a third response. And this one we could describe, I hope this will become clear as we look at this, as what really matters is just belong to the right group. As long as I'm a part of the right group of people, I'm okay. And when we come to chapter 2, verse 17, uh, just like in chapter 2, verse 1, where Paul addresses, uh, he addresses the person who judges other people, we looked at last week, in verse 17, Paul addresses the person who calls themselves a Jew. But if you call yourself a Jew. Now, what I want you to think about here is he's, he's addressing a specific kind of person. And he's addressing a specific kind of person with whom Paul would be deeply familiar. Paul was a Jew. And he was a highly trained Jew. He was an expert in the law. He understood the Jewish scriptures better than most his age and even those older than him. He's here talking to us about what we might call the religious insider. The religious insider. He's talking to us here about the person who knows God, who believes in God, who claims the privileges and promises of God, but misses the essence or the heart of biblical religion. Now, I don't want to draw one-to-one correspondence here, but there is a strong analogy between the person in view here, the, the person who calls himself a Jew, and a professing Christian. And I, I try really hard when, when I'm up here talking and, and how we do uh, church to always have in mind that there may be people here who are very unfamiliar with Christianity or who may be somewhat familiar but don't believe it. And, and I, I want, just want you, if you fit into that, 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 that group this morning, I want you to know I, I'm, I'm really aiming at the religious person this morning. So I, I'm not, I'm not uh, deliberately excluding you, but, but this passage is written for the insider religious person, the person who is familiar with Christianity and the Christian gospel and the church. And there's, there are realities that, that Paul wants us to see and to understand 
if we're really going to grasp the good news. So, what I want to do this morning is look at uh, this problem. The problem that Paul is addressing here is the tendency for religious people to confuse spiritual privileges with spiritual life. The tendency for religious people to confuse religious spiritual privileges with true spiritual life. So what we're going to do, I want to look at the problem with privileges. We're going to look at some uncomfortable questions. And then we're going to finish with the one thing necessary. So let's look at the problem with privileges. Look in verses 17 to 20. That's where we're going to look here for a moment. And uh, before we we take a look at those specifically, um, you know, it's very tempting uh, at at this point to to launch into a topic that is pretty pretty, uh, common today, which is privilege. Privilege gets talked about a lot in our current cultural moment. And usually it has a negative connotation uh, that if, if, if people just um, who had privilege used it differently, things would be better. And you kind of get the impression if you're a person of privilege of whatever variety, um, you're, you're suspect. And that all may be true. Perhaps it is true a lot. But what I want to emphasize for this morning is the problem with privileges is not having them. It's like power. Power in and of itself is a very good and necessary thing. Privileges can be very good and beautiful things. But privileges, just like power, can be abused, can be used to uh, marginalize people, to withhold things that people really are uh, need and even perhaps are entitled to. But what I want us to see here, the problem with privileges that we're going to look at this morning is they can't change you. They can't change you. For example, my, my stepdad growing up, particularly when I was about the age I was going to turn uh, 16 and be allowed to drive, he always used to say to me, now, Will, you need to understand that driving is a privilege. It is not an honor. What he meant by that was, this is something we're allowing you to do. We're not allowing you to drive because you're so great. Another way to think about this, the privilege of driving won't make you a good driver. Uh, You might have a driver's license and have dings all over your car. The privilege itself doesn't make you a good driver. And so what Paul does here in these first few verses is he mentions several privileges that the person who calls himself a Jew has. The insider religious person. And let let me list these for you. The privileges he here mentions is a person who can identify as one of God's people. They call themselves a Jew. This is a person who believes God's word. He says there in verse 17 that, that you rely on the law. And here law means God's instruction, his revealed word. 
This is a person that claims God as their own God. They boast in God. Uh, This is a person who looks to God's word for direction and guidance. Verse 18, you know his will and approve it. This is a person who even has, uh, to a a great degree, a, a teachable attitude, a willingness to learn. When he says here in verse 18 towards then, you are instructed from the law. This is a person who wants to hear from God and is instructed by it. And then lastly, this is a person who even owns their calling to be a blessing to others. Look in verse 19. You yourself, you're a guide to the blind. You're a teacher of children. You teach others. You're an instructor to the foolish. That this is describing this person's privileges of a calling to be a blessing to others. And in fact, even this is a person who's confident that God's word can speak to the realities of life. But here's the problem. You can have all those privileges and yet remain unchanged and be really no different than the most irreligious person. And think about this for a moment. I know that many of us in this room are the recipients of uh, having grown up in a Christian home or maybe have grown up in the church. You have grown up around the teaching of the scriptures, people who love the Lord who are incredible models to you. Parents, perhaps, siblings, friends. And here's the question. You can have all of those things and yet be unchanged. And in fact, in some instances, all of those privileges can actually lead to more hardening of the heart. And so Paul then asks a bunch of un, several uncomfortable questions. Look in verses 21 to 24. If I could summarize, what is it that Paul is really trying to ask you in these, in these questions when he says, if you have all these privileges and you understand yourself to be this kind of person with this kind of calling to bless other people, verse 21, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who say that you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Here's what Paul is is asking you. He's asking you, to what extent have the spiritual privileges that God has given you been digested into your life and personally grasped? One of my my friends from Asheville, the way he would put this is, are you smoking what you're selling? (laughs) He's from Asheville. (laughs) Um, That's the whole idea. That you can have these privileges and you not own them for yourself. They become a billy club to use on other people. But... You yourself don't see them as as life-changing gifts for your good. So Paul then asks, 
Are you taking to heart the very same things you want others to know and believe? He also asks, you would agree that stealing is wrong. And yet, do you steal? Think about this is the eighth commandment. What's in view here? Well, think about honorable business practices. Think about using our resources for the good of others. It's not just a negative thing. When God says in his word, do not steal, he also means, and therefore, think about, work out, what does it look like to be a neighbor for your neighbor? And even not just your neighbors that you know and like, but for your enemies. He says, you might agree that adultery is wrong, but do you commit adultery? Think about this in terms of purity of heart, of fidelity, of faithfulness. This is not just, I'm not unfaithful to my spouse or I'm an upstanding citizen. Jesus teaches us that this goes to the very heart of who we are. In Matthew chapter 5, he describes that lustful intent for another man or for another woman is as if we had committed adultery. And that's something no one can see. You might agree that idolatry is wrong, but love someone or something more than God. See, Paul is, is putting us under the microscope here. And he, and he, he, he ends here with, with another very uncomfortable question in verse 24. While it's not phrased as a question, I'm turning it into a question. And I want you to think about this. Verse 24 says, The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is a, a quote from the prophet Isaiah. But I think what Paul is asking us here is, What picture of God do you think others are getting from your life? What picture of God do you think others are getting from watching your life? Let me give you some, some things to think about. Think about our own idolatry. Think about our, our disordered loves or our misplaced trust. What might that communicate? I think what it could communicate is, well, God must not be real. When we give our love and our affection and our loyalty to another God, a counterfeit God, what we're saying is, the God that I say I believe in, he, he's not real. Or, maybe what we're saying is God can't be trusted. Think about the idea of stealing. Why, what does it say when you and I are afraid and anxious? Or when we fret about, will we have enough? What we're saying is, can God really be trusted? Will he really take care of me? Or, think about the idea of adultery. What is that all about? Adultery is really all about the beauty of love and intimacy and commitment and vulnerability and communion you see, when, when, when adultery, unfaithfulness, becomes what bubbles out of our lives, what we're basically saying is God's love is not real. It's not really good. It's not enough. 
There must be something better out there. Now, these are all, I admit, admit, these are all really uncomfortable questions. And I was talking with my wife about this this week, and I, I couldn't help but think about this, that this is why we preach through books of the Bible. This is why I don't pick different passages every week. Because to be honest with you, there are a lot of passages I'd like to avoid. And frankly, Romans 1, 18 through 320 would be a big chunk <laughs> I would like to avoid. But we can't. It's God's word. And it's there for you. Even those of you who have maybe never known a day not knowing Jesus. And here, Paul, these probing questions, they, they lead us to the one thing that we most need. But here's the thing. The person to whom Paul has in view here, this one thing that we most need isn't what this person thinks they most need. So let's look at verses 25 to 29. What is the one thing necessary? Here he, he brings in the, the idea of circumcision, the sign of circumcision. And it dominates verses 25 through 29. Why does he begin to talk about that here? Well, if you're not familiar with this, uh, let me try to make you familiar. If you are, let me remind you. Circumcision in the Old Testament was the sign of who you were. It was the gift God had given to Abraham to mark his people as his own. It was the sign God gave to his people that said, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was a sign of God's irrevocable grace, unchangeable commitment to his people that he would fulfill his promises that he would fulfill his word to his people. And in response, his people were called to love and to serve him. It was the sign of the covenant, of this deep, abiding, permanent relationship between God and his people. And so for good reason, it is a really big deal for the Jew. This is how you knew who you were. This is how you knew where you stood. However, Paul, in a very shocking way in this passage, says circumcision in and of itself is it makes no difference. Listen to what he says here. It is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, and there's an implication, and you have your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. What his point is here is that being circumcised is not your security. Having this sign doesn't save you. In fact, he goes on to say, if a man who is uncircumcised, that is a Jew, I mean a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, if this person keeps the precepts of the law, which we're to read there and understand that to mean to love God, to follow him, to serve him. Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? In other words, what matters here is the heart, not the sign, which is precisely what Paul says in verse 28. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. 
Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. See, Paul here, it is unthinkable that Paul would say, it doesn't matter if you've been circumcised to a Jewish person. That is an unthinkable thing for him to say. But why is he saying that? Remember, the, the problem here is confusing spiritual privileges with spiritual life. Circumcision, and we could even, in our context, think of baptism and the Lord's Supper in this, in this regard. They are not ends in themselves. They are signs. What is a sign? A sign always points beyond itself to something greater, a spiritual reality. The sign is intended to be a gift from God that points away from itself back to God and his grace. So then, what, what is it that we need here? What we most need, we find in verse 29, and it's a supernaturally changed heart. And Paul is saying this to religious insiders. And I, I want to be really clear. I, I don't want you to hear me say to any of you this morning... I don't think that you have a supernaturally changed heart. But if I could put it this way, I want you to have to wrestle with that. I want you to wrestle with the privileges of the gospel that you know and enjoy. And are you confusing those with the spiritual life that only God, through Jesus, by the Spirit, can give you? Notice what he says here. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. You see, I think the more that we reflect on these uncomfortable questions, the more uncomfortable I think we ought to become because the uglier our hearts begin to look. But the good news here, we read from Deuteronomy 10 earlier. Well, later in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, Moses writes, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. Paul in Colossians chapter 2, he writes this, in Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then in our passage, this is done by the Spirit, not the law. In other words, you can't earn this. You can't achieve it. It is a gift. Only God the Father through the Son by the Spirit can change your heart. Now, I I wonder how any of this strikes you. Um... This can be really bad news if, if you are in the habit of building your life on outward appearances. If you understand yourself and your place in the world based on the opportunities and privileges that you have and how other people perceive you, this is a really bad news passage. But... It's full of good news if you believe 
or are beginning to discover that your biggest problem is you. And you can't change your heart. You know, that can be a a huge moment of relief for you. For you just to admit, I cannot change my adulterous, idolatrous, stealing heart. But you know what? God can. You know why that's good news? That means there is no one in this room who is beyond the reach of God's grace. If you can't earn it, what it also means is you can't stand in the way of God's free gift, of his gracious gift to circumcise your heart, to give you a new heart, to take away your hardness of heart, to give you a heart of flesh that loves him and delights in him. Now, how would you know? How would you know as we land this plane? How would you know if God has and is giving you a supernatural, supernaturally changed heart? Well, write down Galatians chapter 5. And, and later on, you go read what Paul has to say there about the fruit of the Spirit. Paul is saying in this passage that our hearts are circumcised by the Spirit. If it's by the Spirit, you will begin to see the fruit of the Spirit. Now, it might be really small, and it might be really infrequent, but the sheer fact that it's even there in the smallest way should be a means of encouragement and assurance to you. But also, let me leave you with a couple, these are a couple quotes I came across as I was reading and thinking this week that I found very helpful to think about. The first one is is from, they're both from long ago dead pastor guys, so just getting that out in the open. This is from a guy, his name is Robert Murray McShane, and he would describe a Christian like this. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. What kind of person are you on your knees before God? How would you answer that? But then secondly... This is by a guy, his name's Thomas Watson, and he said, God loves a broken heart, not a divided heart. How do you move from a divided heart to a broken heart? The only way you can move from one to the other is casting yourself at the feet of Jesus, asking him to give you a new heart. And you know what? He will do it. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that you would continue to work uh, through these passages, though they're hard and and, and, uh, confrontational and perhaps exposing and upsetting in any number of ways. We ask that, um, that you would deal tenderly with us, that you would do the very thing that you speak of in this passage, that you would circumcise our hearts by the Spirit, that you would protect us from confusing all of the beauties and privileges of the gospel with 
true spiritual supernatural life that you alone can impart to us. Father, would you do those things for for your glory and for our good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.